Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight on another very intriguing election night in America. We're about to explain to you just why that is. We're awaiting more results of some key primary races of the 2022 election cycle. Now, polls closed literally just seconds ago in Nebraska and a short while ago in West Virginia. We've got the one and only, our own election king with us at the Magic Wall monitoring it all. John King will be with us in just a moment to break it all down. Now, I said they're key races, and that's because, well, the outcomes of these contests in these two deep red states could be harbingers of many other GOP races to come. Why is that? Because it all might come down to the power of one Donald Trump again. The question will be, does the former president still have as tight a grip on his party when he's out of office and also post-insurrection as he did before the events that led to his, well, his second impeachment? That seems to be the case with at least two top Republican leaders, Both were once caught on tape denouncing Trump for what happened on January 6th. In fact, listen to this new audio that just came out of Senator Lindsey Graham right after the Capitol attack. He's misjudged passion. You know, he plays the TV game, and he went too far here. That rally uh, didn't help. Talking about, you know, primary mass, and he created a sense of revenge. As they say, that was then. He also said that he had, well, enough is enough. Remember that? Well, now Graham keeps saying that the GOP can't move forward without Trump. And remember, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, he heaped some high praise on Trump just last night, even referring to Donald Trump as a Republican's secret weapon on a stage they shared together after his own audio was leaked once saying that Trump should resign. And then there's the new warning from one of Trump's former cabinet members that the commander in chief that he once worked for is, quote, a threat to democracy. Do you think Donald Trump was a threat to democracy? I think that uh, given the events of January 6th, given how he has undermined the election results, he incited people to come to D.C. To me, that threatens our democracy. So, yes, I think the answer would what else can you conclude? What else can you conclude, he says. That's quite an indictment from a former defense secretary and one that was actually picked by Donald Trump. And then what about this new big headline? Remember, after the attack on the Capitol, former president was permanently suspended from Twitter for violating the platform's rules against violence incitement. But now Elon Musk, the billionaire who could soon own the social media giant if the deal closes, says if he does run it, he would reverse that permanent ban on Trump. So it seems that Trump remains the connected tissue here, which brings us right back to how he might impact these primary races. In Nebraska, Trump's pick for governor is Charles Herbster. Now, he's a wealthy businessman facing a slew of sexual misconduct allegations, and Trump's been dismissing the women's accounts. 
And in West Virginia, two sitting members of Congress now find themselves running against each other for one House seat. Trump's backed the candidate who voted to help him overturn the 2020 election. That's Alex Mooney. And not David McKinley, because he's the guy who voted for a bipartisan January 6th commission. So who will come out on top and what could it all mean for Trump, not only in November, but also beyond? Let's go straight to John King live at the Magic Wall. John, what are you seeing there? Uh, Laura, what we're seeing in West Virginia, where we have results for about 55 percent right now, is that Trump-backed candidate, Republican Congressman Alex Mooney, opening a nearly 15-point lead here over the other Republican incumbent, David McKinley. West Virginia lost a seat after the 2020 census, so you have these two Republican incumbents running against each other in this district here in the northern half of the state. Uh, McKinley has the backing of most of the Republican establishment, including the Republican governor. He has the backing for Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who shot a TV ad for David McKinley. But a lot of Democrats don't like to hear this. Some Republicans don't like to hear this. But here you have, again, just like last Tuesday night, Laura, when we spoke, proof of the power of a Trump endorsement at the moment. We haven't called this race yet, still at 55%, but over the last hour or so, this lead has gradually and steadily increased. 7,000 vote lead now for Alex Mooney. Again, 53% if you round up to 37%. We're not done counting yet, uh, but this was one of Trump's best states. He won every county against Joe Biden in West Virginia uh, two years ago. And it looks, not at the finish line yet, but it certainly looks like yet again, the power of a Trump endorsement, whether you like him or not at home, uh, it still has a lot of sway in Republican primaries, especially in these very pro-Trump states like West Virginia. We're still waiting for votes to come in in Nebraska. Now, John, just so I'm clear, in the, uh, of the states coming in, of the counties still coming in to report, those weren't to Trump previously in the elections. They're going to probably go the same direction of those, those who he endorsed. You have to be careful about that in the West Virginia race because you do have two established Republican incumbents. Most of the new district in West Virginia actually is McKinley's old district. It just shows you the power of Trump without a doubt. I switched over to Nebraska in the governor's race just to get a sense, uh, Laura, but we have not, you know, not much you can say about this right now. Uh, Brett Lindstrom, uh, who's not endorsed by Trump or the Republican establishment, he's a state senator, third candidate. He's ahead at the moment, but this is just 8% of the vote. Jim Pillen, you see it changing as I speak. We're up to 21% of the vote. Uh, Lindstrom leading, though, at the moment. Uh, Jim Pillen is the candidate of the Republican Republican establishment. He's endorsed by the current governor who's term limited, Governor Ricketts, who can't run again. Trump's candidate is Charles Herbster, the businessman. He's at 18 percent so far. Uh, but again, as you can see, these votes are mostly coming in in the Lincoln and the Omaha area right now. We've got a long way to go. But it is, Laura, we talked about this last week. We had the primary in Ohio last week. We have Nebraska and West Virginia tonight. Uh, we have Pennsylvania to come uh, next week, Georgia the week after that, a few others as well. Uh, by the end of the month, we'll have a much better sense of how much sway Donald Trump still has over grassroots Republican voters. Big debate here in Washington. I know you had the Lindsey Graham tape, uh, the Esper interview there. Uh, so some of the big names in the party are still debating Trump. But what matters most to us in this election year and then heading into 2024 is what do Republican voters think? Do they still follow his lead? We'll have a better answer at the end of tonight and certainly at the end of the month. John King, thank you. And of course, I want to bring in our panel here, Dana Bash, David Chalian, and Abby Phillip as we dig into these returns. And of course, I'll pick up where John left off because if you're thinking about how things begin, say with someone like a Lindsey Graham or a Kevin McCarthy, these audio tapes are revealed that where you begin is not ultimately where you end up. So we'll see how these elections fare out. Dan, if I can go to you on this point, because particularly with someone like Lindsey Graham, you know, um, you have to wonder, is there anyone whose opinion is going to sway the electorate? I mean, you've got Lindsey Graham making the comments that he has. You've got people like Kevin McCarthy. You've got people like Esper, not just Esper. You've got John Bolton who made comments, James Mattis, the Rex Tillerson, the list really goes on and on. Is there anyone who has any sway that could, well, Trump Trump's? 
The short answer is no, uh, not for this core, at least in days like today, on days like today, primary voting electorate, uh, especially when you're talking about ruby red states. We are waiting for results in both of the states that we're watching, both West Virginia and, and Nebraska. But I think the answer to your question lies in the changes that we've seen in the public statements from Lindsey Graham and Kevin McCarthy. Mike Esper is in his own category. And the changes are, are that despite what their reaction was, the very human uh, reaction in the immediate days and uh, hours and days after January 6th, they realized that the political winds weren't changing in their own party. And so they went back to full on Trumpism. I mean, this idea, Abby, of enough being enough, to paraphrase what Lindsey Graham had to say, it is true. It's where the Mary Poppins, I'll stay as long as the wind doesn't change directions. And there we have, it didn't change directions. They essentially are saying there in this particular area here, the mom and me has to quote Mary Poppins. But I have to ask you about this, Abby, because <laughs> one of the people that Donald Trump is endorsing in Nebraska has allegations of misconduct against him. Now, this is kind of a, a little bit more familiar in recent modern American political times about the idea of testing the morality, for example, of a particular party. The Republicans, I know, used to be the party of moral values. And then you've got this person, Charles Hepster, Herbster, who is backed by Trump, Trump explaining away the behavior or dismissive of it. What does this tell you about the impact of something like this? Particularly, we're talking about not, we're not really out of the Me Too era. We remember the allegations of previously inc previous incumbents and the like. Is this indicative of something bigger? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, um, Trump is not one to rule out an endorsement based off of allegations of misconduct, really of any kind, but certainly not sexual misconduct. On multiple occasions, he's either endorsed a candidate uh, with allegations against him or has uh, has seriously considered endorsing candidates with allegations of misconduct against them. That's just how he operates. He doesn't view those things as particularly important. And uh, this will be a test, though, about whether or not voters in Nebraska agree. Uh, I think that Trump himself has been able to blow past a lot of things like this, controversies of all kinds, because Republican voters give him the benefit of the doubt. It's just not as clear whether that will be extended to someone whose name is not actually Trump. And that's part of what we are uh, going to be testing tonight with this election in Nebraska. How much does it really matter to uh, to rank and file voters in some of these um, these races? Let's say Ohio, for example, the most recent one. Trump's candidate won, uh, but but in you know a. a a race in which you had multiple other candidates who got plenty of votes, too. So his endorsement is giving people a bit of an edge. But can it overcome an overwhelming uh, disadvantage? We don't know that yet. And that's one of the things that we're waiting to find out. Interesting. We're all talking here, David, about Republicans and the Republican base in part. But Nebraska is a kind of interesting example here because there was more than 8,000 Democrats and independents who actually appeared to register as Republicans to be engaged in this particular primary. Does that tell us more about that maybe Trump is a galvanizing force for Democrats and independents to turn out to vote to, to in a de facto sort of primary general election? 
I don't know. I think that probably tells us a bit more about how deeply red Nebraska is and that the Republican nominee uh, is likely to be the next governor of Nebraska. And so if you want to sort of participate uh, in that process, especially when a candidate like Brett Lindstrom, who you're looking right now with 21 percent of the vote in is in the lead, is making sort of a moderate uh, appeal. Uh, He's very much appealing to those folks uh, saying, hey, this is an area for the Republican Party. Perhaps that will work for you. Change your registration. Uh, come on over. So uh, be part of this process. Uh, I think it probably has more to say about that than it has to say about Trump as a galvanizing force for Democrats, Laura. But that is not to say Trump is not a galvanizing force uh, for Democrats. In fact, there's a bit of a debate inside the Democratic Party right now about how much to lean into Trump as a boogeyman this fall as they're trying to deal with this very tough political environment because of inflation, because of President Biden standing uh, in the polls, um, that there's this debate inside of like, how much can Democrats use Trump when he's not actually on the ballot as a way to bring back some of those independent suburban voters that sort of pushed away from the Republican Party in the Trump era? And of course, we're talking about West Virginia as they're polling or results are coming in from that particular thing. And I wonder about who has the most influence going forward as well. We know, of course, from John's conversation that even Senator Manchin has weighed in in favor of a Republican primary candidate here. So a lot more to get to there. We'll have you back on. Dana, David and Abby, thank you so much. Coming up, brand new details emerging from the Alabama fugitive manhunt that ended yesterday in Indiana with the capture of an escaped convict and with an ex-correction officer's death. We've got new dash cam video released of Casey White being taken into custody. Back in a moment with the sheriff on that case on what was found in their possession, how they managed to escape and, well, stay on the run for so long. That's next. This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news, CNN can now project Representative Alex Mooney has defeated Representative David McKinley in the GOP primary in West Virginia's 2nd Congressional District. Congressman Mooney had the endorsement of former President Trump. I want to go to and bring in Dana Bash now talking about the reaction to what's going on. Dana, what does this tell you about the fact that a Trump-endorsed candidate, yet another one, has now become a primary victor? that the Trump uh, endorsement matters a lot in places like West Virginia, where the Trump brand, the Trump persona is uh, is one of the, the, the most, if not the most important aspect of the GOP. Uh, you got to remember that West Virginia is the place where Donald Trump did the best except for Wyoming. So he had an enormous, enormous uh, lead over at the end uh, after Election Day 2020 over Joe Biden. Uh, it has become an increasingly red state, an increasingly Trump state. And his endorsement of uh, Congressman Mooney clearly mattered. And it is noteworthy that the Democratic senator, Joe Manchin, as we talked about earlier, put himself on the line by uh, endorsing the congressman's opponent somebody who he said he had a relationship with for 40 years, but also most importantly because of the, in his words to Manu Raju, lies uh, that were being told about the record. And it really came down to fealty on January 6th 
and on the election, and more recently about uh, having the um, the, no the notion of voting for a bipartisan compromise bill on infrastructure, which you would think, especially in a state like West Virginia, Laura, which has a very long history of bringing home the bacon, that would have been a slam dunk politically, not in the Trump era, not in a Republican primary. And it seems, of course, we're going to bring in John King into the conversation and get his take on what we are seeing from the reports and what came in. Because, of course, as she mentioned, Senator Joe Manchin did talk about Mooney as being a potential outsider. Didn't seem to be the case here for the primary voters. It, it did not. And if you look at this, again, these are two incumbent Republican congressmen, two incumbent Republican congressmen. And David McKinley, uh, about 60 percent of this new district is his old district. So if, if there was any geographic advantage, it was to McKinley, not Mooney. But again, as Dana noted, the Republican governor was for McKinley. The Democratic Senator Joe Manchin was for McKinley. Uh, McKinley is getting beat by 14, 15 points here right now. CNN has now projected this race, Laura. We're still counting the votes, but we're up to two-thirds, and it's 52 uh, percent to 38 percent if you round that up. That's 14 points. And again, I said this at the top, a lot of people at home say stop talking about Trump. Donald Trump is the most dominant force in one of America's two leading political parties. And he is proving it again in this year's primary campaigns. And so for the people out there who want us to stop talking about Trump, that's not up to us. We have to cover these races where Trump's endorsement is clearly making a difference in West Virginia tonight, just as it did in Ohio last week. We're going to have the Nebraska governor's race later tonight as those results come in. And then Pennsylvania Senate race, Georgia, both the governor's race, the secretary of state's race there. Uh, Arkansas, there are some Trump factors as well. So he is a factor in the party. For a lot of people at home who don't want to talk about him, who wish he would go away, uh, he is not going away. And he is the dominant force in the Republican Party right now. What we're going to learn a lot more about tonight and throughout the month is how dominant. Uh, and are there Republicans willing to stand up and fight him? Will Republican voters, this is not about Congressman Mooney or Congressman McKinley. This is about the men and women who vote in these Republican primaries in places like West Virginia and elsewhere. Do they still want Donald Trump? Do they still want to take a cue from him? So when you see this tonight, there's just, it's just, it's unmistakable. Donald Trump endorsed Alex Mooney. David McKinley's a veteran congressman there who had a lot of establishment support and he's losing and he's losing convincingly as these votes come in. I want to go back to Dana here, too, because it's also important about the why there was the endorsement in my mind. Because as John talks about, it's not just the idea of Donald Trump having endorsed. It was the why. It was the idea of this particular candidate not supporting the January 6th bipartisan, um, uh, or they say it's not bipartisan, mm -hmm. but in fact it is bipartisan. You've got two Republicans who are on the committee. The idea of the infrastructure package as well. Bipartisanship of liability anti the January 6th committee, that is as much as the equation here in the calculus for the voters, it seems, as, why, as who did the endorsing as the why. Right, Dana? That's so true. And it's not even a, just a bipartisan, uh, the bipartisan committee. It was a commission. It was the fact that Congressman McKinley deigned to support independence to find out what really happened on January 6th when he and his colleagues were under attack and democracy itself was under attack. Uh, and of course, that bipartisan uh, bill. So yes, it's, it's the combination of supporting or at least uh, not turning away from the big lie of 2020, but also doing Donald Trump's bidding. Because on that infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, this is the kind of legislation that then President Trump was trying to get done, but couldn't for a variety of reasons. And because it would have been and was Joe Biden's victory in a bipartisan way, 
Donald Trump came out against it. It's not because he all of a sudden woke up and said, oh, I think big spending is a bad idea, or, oh, I think building bridges and tunnels and roads and fixing the crumbling infrastructure of America is a bad idea. No, it's because he didn't want Joe Biden to have a victory. And there were a lot of Republicans who disagreed because they thought this is the area where we think we can work in a bipartisan way. But that was uh, a political death sentence for uh, for McKinley. One of the one of the main reasons, but certainly there were others. I got to tell you, I mean, if given all the commentary about partisan stalemate, the irritation from the electorate about things not getting done, if bipartisanship becomes a political liability, I don't know what that bodes for the future of democracy, frankly. There must be other ways to counteract it. Dana Bash, John King, stay close. Coming up, more new details emerging from the Alabama fugitive manhunt that ended yesterday dramatically in Indiana. Everyone is talking about this case all across this country. Back in a moment with the sheriff. Who knows this case best? Next. And now from a story that has captured the nation's attention, because moments from now, the escaped prisoner who eluded authorities for 11 days is going to be back in Alabama, appearing in court for his arraignment hearing. Casey White is being transported from Indiana, where he was hiding out with corrections officer, the late Vicki White. This is dash cam footage of his capture. The two were not related, even though Casey did refer to the officer as, quote, his wife. She was discovered with a gunshot wound, apparently self-inflicted. Listen to this moment at the end of the chase, just after officers reached the car. Let's poke. Let's go ahead and pop. Let's go ahead and pop this front windshield. She's here. got the gun in her hand. She's still breathing. She later died in the hospital. Police also found several weapons, wigs, and $29,000 in cash. Officials saying the 38-year-old prisoner who escaped back on April 29th was allegedly planning to get into a shootout with police if he hadn't had his car rammed by law enforcement. Lauderdale County, Alabama Sheriff Rick Singleton says Vicki White was, quote, basically the mastermind behind the whole plan. And he joins us now. Sheriff Singleton, thank you for being here. It did not end... I'm sure, the way you were hoping. I know you had questions that you wanted to ask of the person that you used to work with, and yet the tragedy of not knowing might be all we have. Uh, that's, that's right. You know, uh, a lot of the questions we had may never be answered now. Um, the main question was, uh, you know, for Vicki, uh, being the kind of employee she'd been for all those years, what in the world possessed her to pull a stunt like this? Uh, you know, the only conclusion I guess we can come to at this point is just uh, a jailhouse romance. You know, I have to wonder about that because it seemed as though a lot of her position, people have questions. How did she, how did this not go notice for so long? <coughs> well, she absolutely exploited her position, uh, her authority uh, within the facility, second in command over operations. She coordinated all the transports through the jail. Uh, she knew Friday morning was one of the busiest mornings for, for inmates to be transferred to the courthouse for court hearings. Uh, Friday mornings can get quite chaotic with inmates coming and going all morning, uh, back and forth to court. Uh, she was able to assign the deputies to 
two vans at one time to get them all out of the detention center and up here at the courthouse. And, uh, you know, it wasn't unusual for her to put one inmate in her car and bring them to the court if the judge uh, at the last minute say, hey, I need to see this inmate or whatever. But typically that'd be somebody for something like public intoxication or shoplifting or some minor offense. Uh, we had a very strict policy that, that uh, anyone with a capital murder would could be escorted by two deputies. And, I mean, uh, yeah. You know, but there again. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, Sheriff, I mean, just the idea of capital murder, he was serving, you know, decades in prison. That was the sentence of him. Now being on trial for yet another murder, or a murder. I wonder, um, there obviously were some guardrails, as you say, that have been, should have been put in place. Are you aware that there really was a romance? Were there, are there other inmates who knew something that we, or you did not know at the time? And are there ways going forward to try to uncover that information as to who knew what when? Maybe other employees in the same facility or anything like that? Was it really completely blindsiding to all of you? Uh, I think it was. Uh, I don't think any employees had any knowledge about what she was about to, uh, to pull. Uh, we did interview inmates the day after, and uh, we received information from them that he was getting special treatment. By that, they were talking about that uh, she would give him cigarettes, which is against policy. She would give him extra food on his tray, uh, you know, those kind of things. And, of course, as big as he was, no one challenged him about those things. Um, but she absolutely used her position, uh, you know, to, to get him out of that facility, and they obviously had a six-hour lead on us. Uh, typically, if someone was to be in court, uh, we would have missed that person much sooner because when they called the docket and then that person wasn't there, then we'd immediately know. But him not actually being on the docket or having a scheduled court appearance, then he wasn't missed at the courthouse because he wasn't supposed to be here to start with. Is that why you consider her the mastermind you've called her? The idea of being able to know methodically all these different things, the six-hour lead time, I mean, the idea of putting in for her retirement, the 29000 in cash. These are things that an actual normal inmate would actually have on hand. And you mentioned his size. I mean, I, I kept going back and saying, how can this, I think he was six foot nine, if I'm not mistaken. How does this extraordinarily large individual, along with her, able to evade for so long? It had to have been quite methodical in being able to plan this. Well, it was, a, you know, of course, she had the assets. You know, when most people escape from a county jail, it's sort of an opportunity uh, kind of situation. You know, they see an opportunity, they take advantage of it, uh, and sometimes they plan them, but they don't usually don't uh, have any plans once they get outside. They certainly don't have the resources that Vicki and Casey White had. Money, a getaway car, a change of clothes, uh, you know, and, and the, the cover of all this uh, in and out at the jail on court day. Uh, but, you know, she was able to excuse me, manipulate all of that and uh, to her advantage. And, you know, they were able to pull it off. Well, Sheriff, she may have been able to do that as well. But now you've got somebody in your, about to be in your custody yet again, who, of course, is, has now escaped one of the facilities. What's going to happen next? Will he be in confinement? Will there be greater protocols safety-wise to ensure that he does not, is not able to leave again? Well, actually, tonight he'll be arriving here within the next hour and a half or so. Uh, he will be immediately carried before a judge for his arraignment hearing. Uh, as soon as that's over, he'll be loaded back up in the transport vans and moved to the Alabama Department of Corrections, which is about two hours south of here. He will not be in our facility tonight. 
the day will come when he will have to be brought back because of the trial coming up on his capital murder charges. Uh, I can assure you there will be extra precautions taken when he's in our facility. Sheriff Rick Singleton, thank you so much. Thank you. You know, the next questions, of course, is what now for the investigation? We're going to dig deeper into how this all happened, what safeguards should be put in place so it can never happen again and other instances, and really try to get into the psychology and the mindset of this ex-guard who seemed to have given her life for this escape. Next. We're discussing the latest in the case of the escaped prisoner, Casey White. He's finally headed back to Alabama in custody after running off with a female corrections officer 11 days ago. Joining me now is former U.S. Marshal and former federal corrections officer Craig Kane and criminologist Casey Jordan. I'm glad you're both here because I got to tell you, people are really riveted by what's happened here. And it's playing out in many respects kind of like a movie. And of course, there's a tragedy and a loss of life, not only from the person who was supposed to be the person in as a corrections officer, but also fled with him. And I want to begin with you, Casey, because I'm, I'm curious about the sort of psychology behind this, the idea of what might motivate, to answer the question of what the sheriff said, what in the world would have possessed her to engage in this behavior? What do you think? Well, the conclusion he came to was jailhouse romance. And I think uh, the public's getting used to this new phrase we're bantering about called hybristophilia, which is the sexual and emotional attraction of a person, but usually a woman, to a heinous or violent criminal, usually a man. And there's a number of reasons why women are attracted to bad boys, especially in prison, and sometimes it's fame. Uh, But in this particular case, I think that she really believed that she was in love with him. Maybe she thought she understood him and nobody else did. Maybe she thought she could fix him or save him. But she was experiencing what we would call limerence, that kind of tingly romantic feeling that teenagers feel when they're in love, to the point that she would sacrifice her job, uh, her pension, sell her house, liquidate everything, sell it for, for you know half its value, go on the lamb with him with apparently no real end game, no great plan, and be willing to die in a shootout if necessary, if that's what it took to enjoy the what I consider to be probably the most exciting 10 days of her life. Is that inconsistent with her being called a mastermind? It sounds as though she's being led by a vulnerability. Is that Can that happen as well and be the mastermind and have those emotions that you're talking about? Well, I don't know if mastermind, considering it only lasted 10 days, would fit, but she was definitely a planner. This was probably two years in the making. They know that she was calling him while he was in prison, that his whole confession was probably a ploy so that he could get transferred back to the jail where she was working so that this entire walkout, it wasn't even an escape, could take place. But the fact that she sold her house, got $96,000 in cash, of which only 29,000 was left when they were caught, bought the cars, got fake ID so she could buy them under an alias, You know, got wigs, bought him a change of clothes, This was a long-term plan. I think the big question we have at this point, Laura, is what was the end game? Did they, where, how does this end? Was it always going to end in a shootout or did they think they were going to get to Canada? Did they have a safe house? I think these interviews are going to reveal a lot once we find out what Casey White has to say. Something she said, and I want to turn to you, Craig, on this, because the the prosecutor in me, when I hear a, a statement that perhaps the confession to the crime to which he will have a trial involving the murder of another woman 
um, that maybe that was a not a true confession or one that was part of an overall scheme. As a prosecutor, I have concerns about the, the ability and the viability of that case going forward now. But I know from a different perspective, you must have concerns about um, the viability of the safety protocols that are in place there. I mean, the idea that the sheriff has said, Craig, that she was essentially able to break out Casey White, the protocols or guardrails that should have been in place no longer there or were not followed and able to lead to this. Um, what changes do you think need to be made going forward to avoid what has happened here? Hi, Laura. Well, first of all, these inmates, they have nothing to lose. So they will study every officer that's in the uh, facility and they will find the weakest link that they could possibly exploit. So they're very manipulative, they're scheming, cunning, and you can't put anything past them. Uh, as far as the pro, you know, maybe he found in Vicky the weak link and, uh, you know, he wooed her and now uh, she fell for his trap. Or maybe she just uh, fell in love with him. I mean, these are questions now with her not being here anymore, we might not ever know. Um, as far as protocol, when, when I, uh, before I became a deputy U.S. Marshal, uh, I worked in a federal correctional facility, and there was always uh, a protocol in place. And what, what it entailed is that if you're going to have somebody set up to go for a psych evaluation for a court, for a dentist appointment to an outside facility outside the jail, we're going to know about this weeks in advance. So it's not going to be like an impromptu type of uh, scheduling unless it's a, a medical emergency. So right there, that should have raised a red flag with whoever let uh, Miss White out with the prisoner. And normally there's always what we call a two-man hold, one-on-one uh, -on -one plus one. And with his history, you would think that they would, might even have a three-man hold. Mm. And... Possibly, you know, when we had to do certain um, movements and it's a high-risk prisoner, we, we would know everything about that prisoner. Sure. We would know his whole criminal history beforehand. Well, and there's a lot to be desired. Just watching the video that was just playing of him sort of walking behind her and going into the back of a car, there's a lot at stake. And, of course, the lingering question, all the things you guys have talked about, it seems the inmates knew far more than those who were actually in positions of power or just as much at that point. Casey Jordan and Craig Kane, thank you so much. Good to be here. You're welcome. Up ahead, some pretty big news about football superstar Tom Brady. He's not retiring yet, but he reportedly just up, lined up his next gig. And if the numbers are real, this is a heck of a deal. It made, well, many people's eyes pop. Does he deserve that kind of dough for that job? We'll debate next. Well, Tom Brady may be in for another season with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but he already has a post-retirement gig. According to the New York Post, the seven-time Super Bowl winner has a 10-year contract with Fox Sports to become its lead NFL analyst, all for a whopping, wait for it, $375 million, the highest of any sports broadcaster. Now, for context, 
Brady reportedly made $333 million over his 23-year playing career. Let's bring in veteran sports journalist Jamel Hill. Jamel, I'm so glad you're here. I've got to ask you, I mean, look, no one can really deny the athletic prowess of Tom Brady, but does he deserve this amount of money, knowing that he's never actually even been an analyst before? Will he be the draw they need him to be? Well, um, well, one, thank you for having me. And we have to remember, deserve has nothing to do with it. It's all about mm. what you can negotiate, and it's all about leverage points. The fact is, Fox has Super Bowl, uh, has the Super Bowl two of the next three years. And when you have the Super Bowl, you need marquee talent. Tony Romo and Joe Buck, uh, two um, premier broadcasters, they've gone to ESPN where they're making a ton of money as well, because I believe they're two and three in that, on that list, or at least in the top five uh, at the very worst. So this was a very timely, um, this was a great uh, time for Fox to approach Brady. I mean, he's at the end of his career. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, how much money he's already made in his career. And so for him to now know that the next 10 years, he's going to basically make more money than he already has in the NFL. If you're him, what's not to like about that? And given his resume, certainly from a credibility standpoint, I don't think the fans have to worry um, or, or Fox executives or the fans have to worry about that. He has the credibility. I mean, he he has so many Super Bowl rings. He has more Super Bowl rings almost than he does fingers um, on both hands. So I, I think the fans are going to buy into it. The question that I have, and this is purely from a professional standpoint, Tom Brady, as soon as he left New England, we've seen more of his personality, certainly on social media. I mean, he seems to be opening up a little bit more. He's got a docuseries on ESPN. So you see a little bit more of Tom Brady as a personality than you saw throughout most of his career. But does he have the ability to criticize some of his peers? Will he say the kind of things that get people to think, um, that put the game in a different perspective? Tony Romo surprised a lot of people because nobody expected Tony Romo to be such a star from the beginning. And so there's going to be a lot of pressure on Brady to kind of live up to a standard that people like Tony Romo have established. Something tells me he's not unaccustomed to pressure. The question I think for many people will be, will Tom Brady change his diet now that he'll be one day an analyst and have a whole different <laughs> level of being comfortable? Will he have pizza while he's trying to analyze inside the game at some point in time? I got to ask you, I, I do want to know about an, your reaction to Mike Tyson, though, as well, from one sport to the next. Because as you may have heard, Mike Tyson, um, who was involved in a altercation on an airplane last month, they have not decided to charge him with any crime in this moment in time. It was a San Mateo um, County, California DA said that they would not based on circumstances of it. And I just wonder from your reaction um, to why he won't be charged. Is this an indication in some respects what we're seeing a greater trend, Jamel, where people are engaged in more taunting, they are requiring those who are in celebrity positions, athletes in particular, to have to have this thick skin where they cannot um, defend themselves in some way, even if they are being antagonized on a plane as he allegedly was. What's your reaction to the way in which this is panning out? Well, I'm glad he's not being charged. And honestly, um, listen, I, I'm not uh, I'm not in any way advocating violence. But unfortunately, there are some people that might need to learn the hard way. There used to be a running joke across all of the world that the one of the few people that you ever want to bring some smoke to is Mike Tyson. And for somebody to aggravate him on an airplane in this situation is just befuddling to me because even though Mike Tyson hasn't boxed uh, in, in a while, he's still in very good shape. 
those hands are still lethal. So I don't know what people think they're trying to prove. Unfortunately, we live in an era of clout chasing where a lot of people, even if they get humiliated, even if they get beat up, they think the sacrifice is worth it. I mean, we just saw recently last night, I mean, Chris Paul, uh, his family at the Dallas Mavericks game during the NBA playoffs, the Phoenix Suns playing the Mavericks, you know, uh, some unruly fans were disrespecting his mother, his wife and his children and had to witness it. So I don't know what is in the psychology of people who feel as if because these are entertainers, because these are sports stars, that they feel licensed to get in their personal space to disrespect them. Like this ain't Twitter. Okay. So you might wind up catching some hands in real life for things that you think just because you're able to say over a key a keyboard, that interaction doesn't wow. work the same when you're with somebody, you know, face to face. I mean, I unfortunately get a lot of disrespect on social media. And there's a few people I've had to tell just based off their tone and the things that they've called me. Hey, just because you see me on CNN and just because you see me on uh, various other networks, don't think that what you say to me now is going to work out the same way if you see me in public. So I think mm. a lot of fans and a lot of people need to learn to respect other people's physical boundaries. You are entertained by them. That does not mean you own them. Jamel Hill, I don't know who dares to mess with you, but it's not going to be me tonight. Thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate talking to you. Thank you, Laura. That's it for us. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now with, of course, Don Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.